The Night of the Long Knives. After Tom left Germany, Klaus fell into a depression. He felt as if he were at the bottom of a deep pit, and his friend had just levitated to safety and light. Around him, large pincers were sliding out of a crumbling wall. Tom had wondered about Klaus's relationship to Nazism. Klaus wondered this as well. He did not respect reason as an absolute, and so was deeply, tragically susceptible to passion. When reason falls, whoever screams the loudest will rise. It is an iron law. Klaus did not believe in the supremacy of objective reason, and so he had no choice but to take an anthropological and fate-based approach to his own society. What was right was whatever happened. Nothing could be opposed in the face of passion. How could he question passion? With what faculty would he oppose it more? Passion? But Klaus was an intellectual and not given to screaming fits. If he proved that a Nazi's reasoning was illogical, that meant nothing. Reason was not the essence of life. It was dry, analytic, illusory. It did not touch the heart of things. Only emotions were essential. Reason was an invention of man. Emotions were given by God, the world spirit, the essential animal. Reason divided men. Only passion could unite. Reason was boring. Passion was pleasure. Human reason was limited, pointless. Individual emotions were the endless movements of the collective soul. The rejection of reason also sped up the decision-making process. Rather than get tied down into endless chattering debate, as in the Weimar Republic, the most passionate voice would always win the day. And, to be frank, and this was always understood implicitly, if arguments got out of hand, violence could always resolve matters. And why not? A man willing to maim and kill for a course of action was clearly the most passionate, the most committed to it. And if he won the day, then certainly the world spirit was behind him. Might was right. Actually, right had ceased to exist. Might just was. Now, when the terrors of competing tribes descend upon helpless humanity, all the oldest instincts come into play. When dangerous hordes roam the land, individuals begin casting about for a protective group. Klaus fervently hoped that it would not come to that, but things did not look good. On the night of January the 30th, 1933, endless columns of torch-bearing Nazi stormtroopers marched through all the major cities of Germany. They had two main missions in the months that followed, show their might and destroy the Führer's enemies. They had pillaged the offices of the socialist, fascist, nationalist, and communist parties and gathered the names of all members. After that, it was open season. On February 28th, the parliamentary Reichstag was set on fire. The Nazis used the event as an excuse for the most bloody persecutions. Hermann Goering was in charge of the Russian police, and he gave them the authority to shoot without consequences. He attached to the police thousands of young Nazis as Hilfspolizei, 
assistant police, and then pointed them at the communists and socialists. On March 2nd, Wilhelm Fricht passed Schutzhaft, protective custody, which gave the police powers to imprison citizens without trial or course in the newly formed concentration camps. Hindenburg, then still the titular head of state, suspended civil liberties after the Reichstag fire. Citizens no longer had freedom of the press, of speech, of association, or protection from arbitrary arrest. Groaning and screaming under a wave of political beatings, murders and torture, one last German election was carried out under the bloodied remnants of the Weimar Constitution. The Nazis barely held on to power. Even under the most brutal repression, the Social Democrats and the Communists returned 201 members to the Reichstag, although the Nazis prevented the Communist deputies from entering the building. The final blows came quickly. On March 23, 1933, the Reichstag passed one of its last pieces of legislation, the Enabling Act, which gave the German cabinet the right to pass laws on its own authority. By uniting the legislative and judicial branches of government, this act was the final nail in the Weimar Constitution. From the Nazi standpoint, there was only one weakness in the act. It became null and void if another political party took over this loophole was quickly closed. By the end of June, there were no other functioning political parties in Germany. The leaders had been sent to concentration camps or murdered. The followers had fled in fear of their lives. Nazi brownhouses were set up in the major cities. The followers of rival groups were dragged screaming through the streets, through its doors from which few, if any, ever emerged again. On July 14th, the cabinet decreed that there is only one political party in Germany, the National Socialist German Workers' Party. The workers were ambiguous about this latest development. The Nazis did not attack them directly. Instead, their unions suffered grievously. On May 2nd, 1933, the Nazis entered their offices, confiscated all their property, and their leaders vanished under a squirt of propaganda portraying them as parasites feeding on the workers. But the workers had had only grudging respect for the unions anyway. As employment had fallen through the early 1930s, unions were no longer perceived as representing the working man, but rather the employed man. The unions had closed shops, artificially high wages, minimum standards of employment which excluded many, and sought rather to keep the wages of their own members high rather than agitate for the unemployed. So the passing of the unions was scarcely mourned by the majority of the working class. And the Nazis were promising full employment. They borrowed, pillaged, stole from the Jews and the rich, and already by mid-1933, great public works were underway, everything from road-building to land drainage to feverish rearmament. The Nazi program was simple and effective. Enemies were pillaged and eliminated. The indifferent were bought off with the proceeds of the pillaging. Klaus watched all of this with deep ambivalence. He knew that he was in great danger. The Nazis were rapidly anti-intellectual. This was odd, he knew, because they had received a great deal of their early support from university students and their professors. But 
it could be supposed they had needed the baffle gab of modern academic language to obscure their motives and aims. Now they had power. They no longer needed polysyllabic camouflage. Klaus had been one of these men. He knew that. He had argued against reason and for the rule of emotion. He did not believe that the state was subject to any moral absolutes because there were, in fact, no moral absolutes. Brute majority rule was the only possible legitimacy. Well, he called it national self-determination, but a fact was a fact. So he knew that he had been, in a tiny, tiny way, one of the roots which fed this unholy tree. And he also knew that he had been somewhat mistaken about unity. Unity, for Klaus, had always been something organic, inevitable. When a country was united, it was under an orgiastic flag of agreement. Since the world spirit was real, any country which it favored should join as one of its own accord. This all seemed natural and, well, inevitable. As it turned out, this was not, in fact, how the world spirit operated. The world spirit, it seemed, was a tad more Darwinian. Klaus watched all this with a growing sense of unease, but he could not accept the terror of his own words made real, so he buried his conscience under an avalanche of analytical insights and endless questions. He found it fascinating that there appeared to be quite a few world spirits. The Jews had one, the capitalists had another, the socialists another, and the Marxists had yet another, although Klaus conceded that it seemed that the Marxist world spirit was busy elsewhere, probably in Russia, because it seemed quite unable to afford any protection to the Marxists in Germany, who were cut down like ripe grain. Everyone believed that they alone were right, and that negotiation was impossible. Thus, Klaus concluded, Hegel had been quite wrong in assuming the existence of only one world spirit. It was possible, of course, that there was only one world spirit, and that all the beliefs which contradicted it were false world spirits, but that came perilously close to the one God, many devils theology of his father, and so had to be dismissed forthwith. No, there had to be many world spirits, and yet the world spirit was all about the unity of mankind, and so what could be happening? Klaus mused over this for many days. He wandered the endless little roads around his father's house, forever in awe of the ability of a landscape to absorb a dictatorship without change. All these trees are exactly the same as last year. And finally, he came to a conclusion. Somehow, the world spirit, which started off in fragments, could only unite itself through the action of a country uniting itself. By eliminating opposition, the Nazis were eliminating contradictions within the world spirit itself, and so were bringing about the unity of the world spirit by uniting Germany. This was a heady notion, and Klaus stood at a crossroads for upwards of half an hour going over it in his own mind. Unity was perfect because the individual was nothing and the group everything. Thus, if unity is perfect, then all those who oppose the group are imperfect. If unity is perfect, it must be perfectly good. 
Thus, those who oppose the group are evil and must either join the group or be eliminated. When all individuals are united under the group, in other words, when all individuals realize the truth, which is that they are not individuals at all, then, and only then, does the group actually reflect the world spirit, which has become united through the group uniting itself. Then, of course, the world spirit can look beyond the borders of the initial country, the country of its first inhabitation. But that was for another day's thought. Klaus whistled as he walked, secure in the knowledge that he had finally understood the purpose of the world, the unity of all consciousness, the merging of all into one. The current divisions and violence were just the struggle of the social organism for self-unity. Those who opposed the group were like viruses in the bloodstream. They had to be either absorbed or eliminated. Individualism, Klaus thought, was exactly the same as theft. Theft is the taking of the property of another. Since consciousness was in fact collective, just an attribute of the group, any individual who opposed the group was pretending that his own consciousness was not an attribute of the group. Since it in fact was, he was stealing from the group. It would be like claiming the corner of a public park as his own property. Wrong, wrong, wrong. Fundamentally and dangerously misinformed. Individuality was a primitive superstition. The world seemed flat to the foolish, but was in fact round. People looked separate to the uninitiated. They were, in point of fact, all but fragmented reflections of essential oneness. The great problem of human society, Klaus thought as he wondered, was, who shall speak for the one? The reasons of the one cannot be explained, only enforced. The purpose of the one is only available to a small group of initiates. It cannot be transferred or explained to the masses except through rank and emotional propaganda, the necessary great lie described by both Plato and Hitler. The masses cannot obey what they cannot understand, and so leaders must translate their higher ideals to simple allegorical fables, lies. There was, for Klaus, one essential reason behind the failure of the Weimar Republic. If all humanity was one, how could a divisive and argumentative democracy ever be considered a true reflection of unity? It was a lower form of fact, an illusory truth like the shadows on the wall of Plato's cave. Yet why was compulsion so required? Why did it always have to be so brutal? Klaus shuddered as he walked. He had the aesthetic man's horror of violence. It was all well and good to speak of essential unity and eternal oneness, but the abstract loveliness of such ideals always seemed to fall apart when the truncheons came down. Ah, these thoughts just went round and round, and they occupied Klaus for many, many weeks. Hitler's methods spoke more of a lust for power than any altruistic motives. However, to Klaus, Hitler's works spoke more of altruism than his methods. 
And anyway, if Hitler did not represent some sort of advance for the German cause, then how on earth had the world spirit let him get into power? And if Hitler was not in power, what the hell was Germany anyway? A collection of warring, self-obsessed groups, all looking to chisel the middle class to keep their own members in bread and beer? Was that all the nobility that the German soul could summon? Is that what Germany was to mean to the world, a bitter, self-warring, impotent democracy? Surely Germany had more to offer civilization than another version of France or England. No. There had to be something more to life than bread and beer, something higher, something worth sacrificing the self for. And if there was something higher, then Klaus had to accept that there was an ultimate purpose to the world. And if there was an ultimate purpose, then everything had to be unfolding as it should. Thus Hitler had to be part of the divine plan. Klaus conceded that Hitler might not be the ultimate destination of the divine plan. Indeed, in his heart, Klaus hoped that he was not, just as capitalism was a necessary path from feudalism to communism, a necessary evil. Klaus stopped catching himself. Well, that was entirely too narrow a view. It could not be called a necessary evil if it led to an ultimate good. A vaccination hurts, but it is not the same as being harmed. It hurts, but it protects. It is agony, but it is good. Klaus went back and forth in his own mind about the reasons and manifestations of Nazism. Back and forth and round and round. He could question anything, anything, except the existence of a higher realm, the world spirit and ultimate purpose. The possibility that Hitler was a thug, who, through Klaus's indifference and obfuscations, had seized the reins of power of the most advanced nation in Central Europe was far, far beyond his capacity of thought. That possibility resided in his individual conscience, and individualism was the greatest evil. Martin had no such difficulties. Nazism was the final result of secular humanism. He blamed Klaus squarely and directly. Secular authority was what man turned to in the absence of religious faith. The absolute state was a petty substitute for God. Satan ruled the physical world. Thus all rulers of the physical world were agents of Satan. This was quite an odd perspective, because as a Lutheran, Martin should have been greatly in favor of a dictatorship. He would have been as well, except that the Nazis from the very beginning toyed with the elevation of Nazism to the status of a state religion. Protestants, since they started out as a competitive alternative to Catholicism, have always been good at spotting potential rivals. The cult of Hitler, Hitler was considered to be perfect, infallible, almost omniscient, and a direct agent of the divine, was clearly the sin of having false gods. Hitler himself said that his ascension to the throne of Germany, since it was so implausible, surely represented the will of God. No, in Martin's view, one respected secular leaders as being placed there by God, but one did not confuse them with God himself. You prayed to Almighty God, not the priest. Yet, the problem naturally arose. Why did God allow Hitler to gain power? This was 
actually not much of a problem in Martin's eyes. God allowed Hitler to gain power to punish Germans for the sin of democracy. Democracy was a terrible, terrible sin. God did not care about votes. God did not leave questions of morality to the choice of each individual. God demanded unity and absolute obedience. God placed rulers over the people. Allowing the people to choose their rulers was like allowing people to vote on the existence of God. God always, always punished illusions. And his favored solution was to impose the opposite and make it an absolute. You think you can choose your own rulers? Laughed God very well. But just see what kind of ruler I shall allow you to choose. All decisions in the absence of faith were evil. Democracy was deciding without reference to the divine, and so, Hitler. The summer of 1933 was very hot. Nothing seemed to happen in the country. There were endless reports in the two-weeks-delayed newspapers of dissension and crackdowns in the city, but in the country, everything was as it had been for centuries. Rural conformity bowed little to urban absolutism. Klaus still went flying, but less. The blue-uniformed men of the Air Sport Federation had, with the ascension of Hitler, given up their pretensions and openly declared their motives. Germany needed an air force for protection. Germany was forever being encircled by her enemies. Soviet Russia could attack at any time. The 20th century was to be a war between the Slavic and Aryan peoples, or between the Jewish and Christian peoples, or collectivism and individualism. Be armed, be wary, be ready. Klaus felt vaguely hurt that they had not tried to enlist him. He did not know how he would react to any such overtures. Part of him yearned to merge into the newest and greatest group, to throw himself into the herd of blue uniforms like casting his dissolving self into the sea. Ah, oh, what rapture! What a cessation of conflict and wondering! Tis a consummation devoutly to be wished! Something held him back. He lay awake nightly throughout June, wondering just what it was. It had something to do with his role as an observer. He imagined that the glory of something depended in part on the sophistication of the viewer. Someone who loved classical music was the best person to listen to it. In fact, the beauty of a composition would be entirely lost if it were played to fools who preferred a swig and a fiddle. So the beauty of the collective was lessened if no one remained who could see it for what it was, who could compare it with its opposite. And this view was not available from the inside. The beauty of submission could not be felt by someone who had submitted, for complete submission meant to forget about the opposite, and so there could be no contrast. And he feared it as well. Klaus lied to himself well, but not completely, which is, after all, impossible. He could not erase reality. He could paint a corpse in pretty colors, but he could not bring it back to life. He could convince himself of anything, but he could never stop the need to keep convincing himself. Klaus stayed in the country, partly because he knew that to go to the city would be to end all of his illusions. 
his lovely, silvery, abstract world spirit would be revealed for what it was. A belligerent savage striding the streets with blank, suspicious eyes and a heavy club. So, he stayed with his family, and he flew on occasion, and he walked and wandered and wove and repaired all the nets required to keep his crumbling soul whole. Until the night that ended both restraint and illusion. Until all his past words returned in jackboots. Until June 30th, 1934. Until the night of the long knives. Klaus was at the aerodrome, working on Count Orski's glider. Lately he'd noticed it had been pulling to the right, and so he was deep in the rear of the fuselage, checking the tension of the cables controlling the rudders in the tail. He loved physical work of this kind. It muted the endless chatter of his inner debates. It was easier to fix a rudder than fix Germany. As the afternoon waned into early evening, the light began to dim. Klaus thought he had found the problem and was deciding whether to try and fix it quickly or go and get a lamp, then come back and take his time. He had just decided to work as quickly as he could with the light that was available, based on the reasoning that any decision he put off would be made anyway by the onrushing darkness, when a man's voice called him from behind. Klaus Heppner! Damn it, thought Klaus, that goddamned German voice of imperious command. He sighed very softly and turned around to face the voice. A group of seven blue-uniformed pilots stood in a semicircle around the rear of the glider. Their buttons glimmered faintly in the twilight. Their eyes were shadowed. For some reason they looked vaguely druidic. Klaus Heppner, grinned a tall man in the centre of the semicircle. Klaus tried to remember his name. Klaus Heppner, come down here and talk to us. Klaus stepped down from the fuselage, then stood, his hands clasped behind him, touching the top of his buttocks. "'What can I do for you, gentlemen?' he asked. "'Join us!' cried the man, his grin widening. "'For dinner!' "'I am expected at home,' said Klaus, "'but that is very kind.' "'Home is obsolete,' said another man. "'Please,' said the first man, "'you will not be missed for just one night. A young man should be out with other men.' "'I have brought no money. This is on us, brother to brother.' There was a pause. Klaus felt a strange lassitude enter his very bones. His eyes seemed to lose their focus. He nodded slowly. They drove in two very new cars into the little town, about ten miles beyond the aerodrome, in the opposite direction from Klaus's home. He thought, wedged between two pilots, that every bounce was pulling him further and further away. The little Bavarian restaurant was crowded, but the pilots got seats right away. There was a terrific flurry of activity when they entered. The crowd seemed to part before them, and a hastily abandoned table was made ready for them as they approached it. As they sat down, Klaus remembered the tall pilot's name. Ah, Jorgen! The pilots ordered beer and sausages and made many jokes about each other's ability. They had an easy camaraderie, but Klaus did not imagine that it would be safe for him to criticize their skills, so he refrained from joining in the banter. After about fifteen minutes, Jorgen raised his beerstein. Klaus lowered his head, panicking, wondering just why in all 
of his moral ramblings and questioning, he had never thought of how he might respond to this rather simple and predictable predicament. He also cursed himself silently and violently because he realized that he had put himself into just this position by constantly returning to the aerodrome. I put myself here, yet did nothing to prepare. Heil Hitler, cried Jorgen. The entire restaurant resounded with one echoing cheer. Klaus jerked his stein up and mumbled, I'll spirit, hoping that the movement of his lips might be close enough. To his relief, neither Jorgen nor the other pilots glanced at him at the stein's return to the table. Then the talk turned to the new monoplane fighters. This Willy Messerschmitt is a genius, cried Jorgen, wiping foam from his upper lip. These new monoplanes will revolutionize war. Top speeds over 400 miles an hour. Twelve-cylinder liquid-cooled engines. The fool English with their Rolls-Royce Merlin engines. They sit upright and are aspirated with a carburetor. You put them in a dive. The damn engine loses fuel flow and stops dead. Old Willie is a smart one. The new 109s have Daimler-Benz engines which sit upside down and use petrol injection. There's no human way to stop the flow of petrol to that engine. You get a spitfire on your tail, you just go into a dive. Boom! Gone! Another man grunted, I heard the damn wings come off in a dive. What, the 109s? demanded Jorgen, his face hardening. That's a dangerous statement, brother. Just what I heard, Jorgen. Easy. I heard, said another man, that the petrol tank was in an L shape around the pilot. One blast and you're up in flames. It's armor-plated, snarled Jorgen. You think they are such idiots? I also heard, said another man, that the Hurricanes and Spitfires can outturn the 109. You are all goddamn fools, shouted Jorgen. Early days, early testing. Even if all this turns out to be true, let us not forget that when the time comes, we shall have had five more years' experience than the French. We'll be put in the line of fire somewhere. Goering will see to that. And that will count more than a little tactical advantage here and there. And to speak of such cowardly things on tonight, of all nights... The other pilots all vied to undo whatever offence Jorgen thought they had committed. I said these things to make us stronger. Where would Willie be without our feedback? We'll beat them faster with greater knowledge. Jorgen absorbed their desperate cries and begging eyes with a slow, smug smile. Then he turned to Klaus. And Klaus, have you ever flown a powered monoplane? Klaus shook his head. Well, once, but I prefer gliders. The pilot sitting next to him jabbed him in the ribs. That's good, too, for getting behind enemy lines without a sound. Whoosh! He hissed, landing his flat hand on the tablecloth. Yes, but how long do you think the glider will last with an enemy monoplane around? demanded Jorgen. We'll protect him while he delivers the paratroopers, won't we, brothers? laughed the man. The Steins rose once more. Heil Hitler! The restaurant, which Klaus had noticed was emptying slowly, almost imperceptibly, returned to the chair with great gusto and shining eyes. Jorgen turned to Klaus. You don't say it, he said. I don't know what you are saying. Klaus froze his eyes wide. Do I tell them about the world spirit? He thought not. Jorgen glanced at the other pilots, and they all laughed as one. Jorgen inclined his head towards Klaus, smiling gently. It does not matter. He murmured, barely audible, You shall say it before the cock crows. After dinner and a lot of beer, they went outside. The June evening was hot. The skies were clear and dark, the stars bright. Klaus stood beside 
one of the cars and suddenly wanted to hold out his arms and spin and spin until he collapsed. Jorgen helped him rather aggressively into the car, then took the wheel. They drove back towards the aerodrome in silence. It was the over-sober silence of drunks working up their courage. If Klaus had been seated by a door, he imagined that he would be quite likely to open it, roll out, and make for the fields, the borders, a safe foreign haven. But he was jammed between two sweaty pilots and could feel the right-slung revolver of the man on his left jabbing into his own thigh as the car bounced. I might, he thought, when this night is over, have preferred to have this gun go off into my groin rather than face what is to come. When they pulled into the driveway of Count Orsky's mansion, Klaus gazed at the forbidding stone structure with a sense of terrifying inevitability. He thought of his mother and wondered for a moment why he hadn't ever told her about Count Orsky. There is a man near here with the most interesting collection of carvings from the time of the Black Death. But she probably knew all about him, of course. But he had never been spoken of in their house, and now here he was. When he was pulled out of the car, Klaus noticed that everyone was moving smoothly. Coming out of the door, his cheek scraped roughly against the wool of a pilot's blue uniform, and he recalled how his mother had scrubbed his own flesh raw all those years ago, and he suddenly had the urge to break into a sprint. With a sudden lurch, he thought of Tom, and pictured never seeing him again. Jorgen ran up the front steps, and then turned at the top and gestured silently for the others to follow him. A man grabbed Klaus's forearm, and to avoid the ignominy of being pulled up the steps, Klaus ran up as well. The front door was unlocked. Jorgen opened it, and the men swarmed through. Inside, they found Count Orsky in the sitting room. He was dressed in a dark red smoking jacket, tight black trousers, and was smoking a cigarette through an absurdly long holder. He smiled when the men burst in on him. Jorgen, he cried, rising smoothly to meet them. I didn't hear the aeroplanes. Have you come from the aerodrome? Jorgen did not reply. Practicing a bit of night flying? asked the Count, smiling and extending his hand. Jorgen reached into his breast pocket and pulled out a sheet of soft vellum paper. In the dim light, he squinted at it. Do you need more light? asked the Count. Gentlemen, something to drink? Sit down, Count Orsky commanded Jorgen, his voice shredding the syllables like cheese through a grater. "'But I have been sitting all afternoon,' replied the Count, his face almost comically surprised. Then he shrugged. "'All right, if you want to play the—' he sat. Jorgen read from the paper. "'Count Orsky, you have been charged with high crimes against the Führer. It is so charged that you joined in 1922 the German Fascist Party.' No information has been recorded as to the termination of your membership, and so it has been decreed that you are still a member of that party. Since you have not informed any representatives of the Nazi party that you have terminated said membership, you are found guilty of belonging to an anti-German political group. Wait a moment, cried Count Orsky. What are you saying, that, that I am a fascist? What kind of fool do you think I am? Have I not bought ten airplanes for the Nazi party? Have I not been a regular contributor? Jesus Christ! Christ, I have bled myself white for you bastards! 
Do you admit to joining the fascist party in 1922? Demanded Jorgen, not looking up from his paper. Sure, me and about 50,000 other Germans after the war, in which I served with distinction, unlike you louts who were just out of your fucking diapers. But I haven't had anything to do with the fascists for almost ten years. He jumped up, clicked his heels, and raised his hand, smiling. Heil Hitler! Sit down! screamed Jorgen. I can't read this fucking thing. Klaus! Klaus tried to shrink back, but rough arms pushed him forward. You've got a goddamned Englander degree, said Jorgen, thrusting the paper at him. Read the rest of this thing. I am not really political. This is not politics. Shut up and read, said Jorgen, unclasping the holster of his revolver. Klaus took the paper and took two steps towards the seated count. He seemed to be walking on an unstable cloud. He stared down at the paper, grey in the dim light. He searched for the place where Jorgen had left off. "'Come on!' shouted one of the men behind him. "'Look,' said the Count wearily, "'don't pretend any kind of legality with me. Just do what you have come to do. Loot and pillage. You want money? I'll write you a check. Any amount. Just don't insult my intelligence.' Jorgen leapt forward and raised his hand. The Count shrieked, cowering back in his armchair. All right, he whimpered, all right. Jorgen laughed contemptuously, then whirled on Klaus. Read! Klaus swallowed, but he had no saliva, none. The sentence for said activities is death, he croaked. That was it. He turned the paper over, nothing, just an official stamp of some kind. What, that's it? said Jorgen in exasperation. I could have done that. Count Orsky blinked, straining visibly to absorb his sentence. What, you're, you're going to shoot me? Why? I, I'm, I'm much more useful alive. You can't get... I have contacts! He screamed as Jorgen hauled him off the armchair. The Count's legs went limp. His arms groped up towards Jorgen's set face. I have contacts! I, I will! What? I, I, I told you I had to fly! Jorgen pulled out his revolver. Klaus closed his eyes. The blackness was no refuge, but he could at least hope to escape the visual memory of murder. Then he half-smiled to himself. Murder! How strange! He is only an individual. There was a pause. Klaus dared not open his eyes. There was a slight scuffle. Count Orsky panted. Shoot him, said a voice all too close. Klaus closed his eyelids tighter. A hand closed over his jaw and he opened his eyes. Jorgen was standing before him, staring into his face. Shoot him. He repeated, his voice flat. Klaus frowned. What on earth could he mean? Give me your gun, said Jorgen to a man behind Klaus. Jorgen took it, then pressed his revolver into Klaus's limp right hand. I'm left-handed, thought Klaus, transferring the gun from one hand to the other. He rocked on his feet feeling that the floor was yawing like the hold of a sinking ship. Jorgen yanked Klaus forward and spun him around. 
He put his left arm around Klaus's sagging shoulders, then raised his gun to Klaus's temple. Shoot him, said Jorgen. Another man spoke impatiently. Jorgen, don't be a bastard. Another said, we're wasting time. We have four more to do tonight. Jorgen cocked his revolver. Klaus felt the click shudder through his whole frame. He glanced down. His left hand was rising. He watched his thumb cock the gun. His eyes rose. Count Orski was on his knees, about ten feet away, his eyes wide. Klaus took a step forward. The room swayed. Jorgen held Klaus's shoulder tighter. Come on, he whispered almost tenderly. It's only a moment. Klaus suddenly thought of Count Orski's macabre collection of ancient carvings. What sort of man collects such things? A distant spasm ran through his body like an outpouring of numbing, blessed venom. Klaus did not aim. He pulled the trigger. There was a little click in his hand. Then another little click by his temple. Count Orski fell forward, clutching his stomach. A chorus of giggles ran around the room like a pack of baying banshees. Count Orski looked up, his face distorted in mirth. Iced <laughs> Klaus, he giggled. <laughs> After all my hospitality... Clean and maintain my glider, young man. Then be sure to tootle up to my house afterwards and shoot me in the face. Look, are we done now? Asked Jorgen impatiently. <laughs> oh, yes, gasped Count Orski, wriggling in delight. We really do have four to do tonight. Do you, do you mind if I keep young Klaus here? Asked the Count, slowly getting to his feet. Be our guest, scowled Jorgen, taking the gun from Klaus's hand. Fat lot of good he'd do us anyway. What you see in these intellectuals is beyond me. Count Orski smiled at him. But that is why I give the orders. And you pull the trigger, Jorgen. Because you don't see the value of someone like Klaus. Heil Hitler! The men returned his salute, then turned on their heels and left. Klaus stood in the middle of the room. He thought of the street riot in England only a few years ago and had no idea how to connect that world to this one. The next page of his days was never supposed to have this picture. Please, murmured the Count, taking his hand. Klaus did not move. Come on, sit down. I don't want you toppling over now. Klaus allowed himself to be led over to a love seat. Count Orski went to the bar and poured him a drink. Klaus gulped it down greedily. When he looked up, the Count stood over him, his gentle eyes examining him. Another. Klaus shook his head. He did not know where to put his class. I don't think you'll ever be a killer, said the Count, taking it from him and returning it to the bar, which makes what you did all the more fantastic. I didn't think you had it in you. Jorgen said, if you're so sure, leave bullets in the gun. But I, I don't gamble that way. The Fuhrer would be most upset if I let my vanity get the better of me. 
but you did it! Count Orsky laughed, pounding his fist on the bar three times. And that is wonderful! What did you want me to do? asked Klaus. His saliva suddenly returned by the bucketful, it seemed, and he felt a rolling, ghastly nausea. Please! cried the Count, striding towards him. Don't spoil it by being sick, not now that you have become perfect. Klaus ducked his head between his legs, taking deep gulps of air. Somehow he dodged the vomit. Can I go? he asked. Count Orsky squatted in front of him. He touched Klaus's forehead. In a minute. Why are you not a Nazi? Klaus jerked his head up. Why, why? Count Oski smiled. Well, it's a sensible question, isn't it? You are a Hegelian, a subjectivist, a relativist. You don't believe in absolute morals or reality. You believe that whichever social entity reigns supreme is the one chosen by the... What are they calling it these days? The social absolute, historical necessity, the world spirit. Oh, no! Laughed Count Orsky, rocking back on his heels, clapping his hands in front of his body. Oh, no! That's what they were calling it when I was your age, and for many years before that. I'm sure it's something else now. Not that it matters. That is what you believe, isn't it? Yes. Count Orsky stood up, then pulled over his armchair and sat down opposite Klaus. He stared at the young man for a long, long time. So, why are you not a Nazi? he asked finally. Why would I be? Because we have won, said the Count gently. I can understand having reservations while we were still struggling. I mean, the world spirit could have thrown its weight behind that abortion of a republic, right? But... You are an empirical man. We have one. After tonight, there will be no one left to oppose us. Yet still, you join nothing. You commit to nothing. Why? Why why do you hold aloof from what you love? You hold these truths to be self-evident. Count Orsky smiled, obviously relishing the reference to the Declaration of Independence. I can't understand men like you. What is the point of having all these ideas if you recoil from their embodiment? His voice dropped into a tender whisper. You called and called. Did you really think we would not come? I... I... Klaus hesitated, terror in his eyes. The Count waved his hand. It's all right, we can let one go. Speak. I don't like... This embodiment. Hmm. Why not? Because I would never be forced to shoot you in England, thought Klaus, but held his tongue. You are afraid of me. You cannot speak your mind. But you must. We are most indebted to you. The Führer does not pay these debts. I do. I think we must. If it was people like you who got us here, then you could remove us as well, if you chose. I don't mean you per se, but people like you. Count Orsky changed his mind, musing on. But perhaps you, per se. I am responsible for this. Count Orsky laughed. <laughs> now that was a delicate statement, poised so perfectly halfway between a question and an answer. 
as is Germany. Now, that is facetious. The question, was the Republic, we are the answer. And now you wonder if by we, I mean just the Nazis, or you and I, I meaning the Nazis. Are you part of the we? It is the eternal question, or was until January 30th, 1933, the dawn. Not of a new age, an old age, but with new tools. He shook his head, self-deprecatingly. God, how petty I am. How in love with the sound of my own voice. Were I not born a count, I should have been a lawyer. I feel certain of it. Why did you stage this shooting business? Though it is rude to answer a question with a question, I must. It will become clear. When did you first know I was a Nazi? I... Jorgen left. What night? <laughs> Count Orski stared at him with genuine incredulity and then burst into a roar of laughter. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> oh, Freud was right. Men know not what they do. <laughs> do you really think so? Yes, whispered Klaus. <laughs> I am here. Collecting the art of the plague, funding pilots, buying them airplanes and uniforms. What did you think? You were a flying enthusiast? Count Orsky nodded slowly. Wonderful. You thought I was an eccentric. Klaus shrugged limply. Because I have no banners, no... Swastikas. But banners are not for us, not for men of the mind. They are for the sheep beyond our doors, those who scream for the Fuhrer and pray to his image. I have often wondered if the men in the Vatican really believe in God all the way in the manner of the Polish peasant they rule. It would be gruesome if they did. He stopped, lost in some reverie. No, there is no real point theorizing. Now you must join us. Yes, yes, I, I know what this is all about. I, I do not think I am really worth all this effort. No, no, probably not. But I do love the hunt. It may be only a little fox, but still we release the hounds. You should know that from your time in England. Klaus felt his pulse begin to throb. It, it, is that it? Because I know about England? We do not care about England. We respect the empire. We shall leave them be as the remnants of a noble race. We have much in common. They educated you. I just, I just wonder what would happen to the English Marxists if they were all herded into Russia. Would they still love their ideas under Stalin? Count Orsky laughed. <laughs> it is. I can't imagine what they might say in their concentration camps. It is always the same story. But this is not what I imagined, they cry to Stalin. Stalin replies, no, no, do not leave your theories in the lurch. This is exactly what you imagined. The world spirit. I do so like to imagine how these conversion conversations will go. I've tried the challenge from many angles, but... It is so simple. Everything more than my first words is pure overkill. Are you ready? 
Klaus raised his eyes and stared into the cold lenses of Count Orski's gaze. For a moment, the Count was moved. He saw a young man gathering all of his courage, not to resist, but to exceed, not to run or fight, but bow and merge. Count Orski always found this moment achingly, poignantly sad. It was not the destruction of another young man. That was not quite it. It was that this destruction was not of the young man, but of them both. Count Orski always wanted to have a great fight on his hand, a mortal struggle, a battle to the death, something which would tax him within an inch of his life. But he never did. And this was why. We, the Nazis, Klaus, have won. We are in full control of Germany. Do you accept this? Klaus remembered that he had almost become a murderer this evening. He nodded. Germany is more unified under us than it was under the Republic. Do you accept this? Klaus paused, and Count Orski's voice became sharp. I do not care about your view of the aesthetics of the situation. There is one party, one law, one leader. Do you accept this? Yes. Then do you accept that Germany is more united now than before? Yes. Do you believe that history is the natural unfolding of a universal will? Yes. And that nothing can occur which is not sanctioned by that universal will? Yes. Thus, everything which comes to pass is an improvement on what came before. Do you accept this? It is inevitable, whispered Klaus. He held Count Orski's eyes without blinking. The older man leaned forward. Do you believe that an individual can oppose this universal will? Yes. Under what conditions? If he is chosen by the universal will to lead mankind into the future. Now, would you say that the man chosen by the universal will to lead mankind into the future can be compelled into doing something which he does not want to do by others? Klaus paused. Have courage, snapped Count Orski, his glittering eyes narrowing. Can the man who is the embodiment of the universal will be coerced by others? No. Did you want to shoot me? Klaus closed his eyes, but only for a brief moment. Did you want to shoot me? Repeated the Count more softly. Something within Klaus seemed to sink back into itself like a house of cards being held aloft by pure will alone. No. No, of course not. Thus, you cannot be the representative of the universal will. Klaus smiled. No, I am not. Thus, those who control society, who unify a people and who cannot be coerced, must be the representatives of the universal will, true or false. Klaus smiled. Even wider, it was really so simple, 
true, and uh, please don't think you have to lead me the rest of the way. Count Orsky closed his eyes. Pain was in his drawn brows, pleasure in his loose mouth. What do you want from me? Two things, said the Count, opening his eyes. First you must tell us everything you know about England. It's people, habits, thoughts. A friend of yours works in the Foreign Office. That is important. And second, you must train our pilots. Klaus nodded. You could have forced me to do these things. Count Orsky shook his head. His eyes were glittering, but from tears, not malice. Your acceptance has been the will of God. No sensible man opposes the inevitable. The rejection of reality is one of the basic signs of mental illness. You wanted me to fight more. I did. But that would have been disappointing as well. You could only have fought me by renouncing your deepest beliefs. A man who casts away what he loves because he is threatened is as disappointing as one who stays true to himself and joins us without a struggle. I have a friend who could fight you, thought Klaus for a moment, thinking of Tom, but he could not imagine Tom ending up in this room. Sir! said Klaus, standing up abruptly in the red room, his young body alive with energy. Now that the deed is done, can we light a fire in this goddamned place? 